Morning, Redeemer. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I would invite you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians, chapter number 3. That's where we're going to camp out this morning. 2 Thessalonians, chapter number 3. So if you've been uh, a regular tender, a member here, we've been walking through uh, the book of Revelation. And so today we'll take a pause from that, but in light of what we've been seeing in Revelation, uh, we'll look at this text. So we've been seeing the victory of Christ over the world and expectantly awaiting the second coming of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. So in light of that, um, in the meantime, while we wait for the second coming of Christ, we have to live in this world. And so this text will help us to see how we as a body can be uh, an encouragement to one another uh, as we wait for Jesus to return. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians, New Testament book, right after 1 Thessalonians and right before 1 Timothy. Chapter number 3, we'll begin at verse 1. Look at those first five verses. The Bible says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith but the Lord is faithful that's good verse 3 but the Lord is faithful he will establish you and guard you against the evil one and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command Verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. And so in this brief letter, the Apostle Paul, he is writing to a young church, a young group of Christians gathered together in Thessalonica. And Paul teaches them about the last days or what we would call the end times. And there was in this church a confusion about the second coming of Christ. And so he writes a letter to them, and in 1 Thessalonians, chapter number 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul discusses the coming of the Lord uh, to rapture the saints. And then in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul discusses what he calls the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, that day that will consummate all of history. But apparently... Paul wrote that letter, there was confusion and it still remained among the church, so Paul writes to them a second letter. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter number 1, Paul uh, again discusses the second coming of Christ. And then in chapter 2, he discusses uh, the man of lawlessness, the man who will uh, oppose Christ. And then here in chapter 3, Paul uh, exhorts the church in light of, of the imminent return of Christ. And this is the pattern that Paul uses when he's addressing the second coming. There is first an explanation and then an exhortation. The New Testament is emphatic that Jesus is coming again. Hear me, Jesus is coming again. And the Lord will return to the earth. He will return physically, uh, majestically, and unexpectedly. But Christ's imminent return is not an excuse for us to disconnect from the real world or to live irresponsibly in this world. We are to live, the Bible tells us, we are to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. 
as we look for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this letter begins with the reality of the last days, and then it ends with the responsibility of the saints as we live in these last and evil days. And so in between these two sections, there is a resource that Paul gives us that we, the church, can access until Jesus returns. And the resource that he gives us is the privilege and the power of prayer. The privilege and the power of prayer. Paul is writing to them. He is in Corinth. And as he's in Corinth, he's facing many difficulties himself. And the saints here at Thessalonica, they too are facing many troubles and difficulties here. And so Paul knew the way that they could help each other through these difficult times. He says, essentially, I'll pray for you and you pray for me. There is a dynamic power. There's something powerful that happens when pastor and people pray for one another. When the saints of God pray for one another. But this can only be accessed when we focus on the Lord. And so Paul and the Thessalonians, they prayed for one another. But the primary concern of their mutual prayers were not themselves. They weren't concerned about themselves. It was about the Lord. In fact, the Lord is mentioned four times in these five verses. And so... Second Thessalonians, we'll walk through this text in three ways. Uh, we'll see three things out of the text. And so we'll gather around one big main idea, and it will be this. The Lord should be our ultimate focus as we pray for one another. That's how we'll gather around this text. The Lord should be our ultimate focus as we pray for one another. In Second Thessalonians chapter number three, verses one through five, will teach us three Spiritual priorities that should consume our prayers for one another. Three spiritual priorities that can consume our prayers. So we'll get started. First, the first priority that should consume our prayers for one another is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. So if you just jump back just a little bit up, 2 Thessalonians chapter 16, or chapter 2, excuse me, verses 16 and 17, we'll read there, the Bible says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So chapter 2 of this letter uh, Paul ends with a prayer to the church at Thessalonica. And then in chapter 3 it begins with Paul making a prayer request to the church. So chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, finally, brothers, pray for us. It says, pray for us. And this request is not a unique request for Paul. In fact, he consistently and oftentimes frequently solicits the prayers of the saints. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul says, again, brothers, pray for us. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and this is the church at Thessalonica. They were brand new Christians. And so, watch it. Paul did not think that though they were brand new Christians, that they were too small, too little, too weak in their faith to pray for him. 
And Paul also did not think that he was too big, that he was too mature in his faith to ask them to pray for him. Paul humbly requests, brothers, pray for us. And this request, um, grammatically, it emphasizes that this is an ongoing action that he's asking him for. He's not asking that you just pray for me one time. He's asking that you consistently, ongoing, pray for me. And so Paul reminds us, he gives us this example and reminds us that we never ever reach a place, we never come to a time in our Christian walk, in our walk with God, that we don't need others to pray for us. The Christians here, the saints at Thessalonica were facing many difficulties and Paul prayed that the Lord would comfort them and establish them. But Paul did not consider that whatever they were going through, these difficulties, he did not consider that these young Christians, whatever they were going through, that what they faced was so great, was so big that he did not want to ask them to pray for him. They needed to pray as much as they needed to be prayed for. And this is the irony of prayer. The irony of prayer is that the heavy load that you carry is oftentimes lifted off of you when you take on the burdens of others. That load that you are carrying, God oftentimes lifts it off of you when you bear the burdens of others. You don't believe me, let me give you some Bible. Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42, verse 10. The Bible says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. So if you've been to church a long period of time, or if you read the Bible, then you know the story of Job. Job lost everything he had. God allowed Satan to take everything that he had. Wife, kids, everything. And his friends show up, and when they come, they are not good friends. They come, and instead of uh, comforting him, they condemn him, and they question him. But even in the midst of all of that, Job prayed for his friends. And the Bible says that God intervened for Job when he prayed for his friends. And likewise, God also will restore some things to you when we pray for your friends. And so Paul understood this. He understood that there is a benefit to mutual prayers. So he asked the saints to pray for him and his missionary team. And specifically, uh, Paul makes two prayer requests concerning the word of the Lord. Two prayer requests concerning the word of the Lord. First, he asked them to pray for the opportunity that is before them. Verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. So the request that he makes here is not so much for Paul and for Silas and Timothy. It was for the word of the Lord. It was an affirmation of the primacy of the word of God. No one in the church is indispensable. But the word of God is. All that the church is, all that the church does should be rooted and grounded in the word of God. One commentator notes here, he says, too much Christian work these days is often accomplished by human plans and promotion and not by the word of God. 
We trust our programs and we do not trust the word of God. May this not be true of us. May this not be true of us here at Redeemer Fellowship. May the Lord give us a, a holy passion and a preoccupation with the word of God. May we preach it. May we teach it, believe it, obey it, share it, defend it, and pass it on to the next generation. And us, for us to be these kinds of people, this requires prayer. Prayer and the word of God are tethered together. They are knitted together. Oftentimes when we think of the ministry, we think a church thrives because they have children's ministry and men's ministry. And we think of all of these things that we need to put in place. But ultimately for the church to thrive, we need the word of God to go forth and we need to be people of prayer. Those are the two things we need. We need the word and we need prayer. They are tied together. Both must be alive and well for the church to be healthy. So Paul, he asked the church to pray for the ministry of the word. And he asked them that they would pray that the word would get out. Paul asked for the prayer. He says that the word of the Lord, verse 1, may speed ahead. And Paul, the verb that Paul is using here, it means to run. It's an athletic term uh, for someone who runs a race. Paul is picturing the word of God as a strong runner speeding ahead on its course. And so this prayer request, it makes an important statement about the nature of the word of God. The word of God is not passive. The word of God is not dead. It's not idle. The word, it's alive. It's active and it's on the move. Psalms 147. Psalms 147 verse 5. Bible says that he sends out his commands to the earth and his word runs swiftly. The word is alive, it's active. This prayer request also makes a statement about the urgency that we ought to have uh, towards the progress of the word of God. So if we believe the word of God, then we should pray earnestly that the word of God would speed ahead to reach those who are lost. If we really believe this, then we should be people who earnestly pray that this word that has captured our heart should get out to capture the heart of those who are lost. We need to pray that the word gets out. But not only do we need to pray that the word gets out, we need to pray that the word gets in. The word needs to get in because oftentimes the word can get out and it doesn't get in. It can reach the ear of the person who hears it, but it never gets to their heart. So Paul asked that the saints to pray that the word of God may speed ahead, verse 1, and be honored. That word honored, it can be translated depending on the translation that you're reading. It can be honored, it can be praised, glorified, triumph. Some translations have it. That's what that means. In Psalms 138, verse 2, Psalms 138, verse 2, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness for you have exalted above all things. Listen, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God exalts his word just as much as he exalts his name. 
And it is the will of God that his word would be exalted among us, that his word would be lifted up among all men. So pray that the word of God may be honored among us, that it may be honored in our city, in our state, in our nation, and among the nations to the ends of the earth. That should be our prayer. And at the end of verse 1, Paul gives us uh, a frame of reference. He says, as happened among you. So when Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica, they honored it. They heard the gospel and they honored it. We know this, in fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes, and we also thank God consistently for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so Paul has the church to pray that what happened among you here in Thessalonica would happen in Corinth where I am now, that the word of God may speed ahead and be honored. So we need to pray one, two prayer requests that for the opportunity that is before us, and then also we need to pray for the opposition that is against us. So in verse 1, Paul, he testifies about the positive response that the word received in Thessalonica. And then in verse number 2, he will testify about the negative response that the word is receiving in Corinth. In verse 1, Paul asks, the church to pray for the proclamation of the message. And in verse 2, he asked the church to pray for the protection of the messenger. In verse 1, we see Paul's humility. But in verse 2, we see Paul's humanity. As he asked the saints to pray, verse 2, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Paul was in Corinth writing to them and he was doing the work of the Lord. He's doing the work and the will of the Lord. Yet he still faced many oppositions as he describes by wicked and evil men. Wicked, that refers to stubborn or uh, unreasonable men that oppose the word. One commentator calls these men uh, morally insane. Paul calls them wicked and he says they're evil men. Uh, the evil man, that indicates that they were up to devious things, uh, mischief to hinder the work of the Lord. And so this is as specific as Paul gets about this. He doesn't really go into much more details with them in his request. But we know from the record of Paul's time in Corinth that he's referring to religious people both outside and within the church who are opposing the work of the Lord. One commentator says it this way. He says, I find that the spreading of the gospel is hindered more by people in the church than by anything else. No liquor industry, no bar room, no gangster's ream have ever attacked me, at least that I'm aware of, but I've had so-called saints in churches attack me to hinder the work of the Lord. And this is what Paul's talking about. He can understand this. He relates to this. But yet Paul, he does not spend a lot of time talking about his opposition. He mentions it 
to them only for the sake of asking for a prayer request that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. That word, deliver, it's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, when he teaches us to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer, when he says, deliver us from evil. It's the same word, deliver us from evil. And so, why does Paul ask the saints for deliverance? He tells us, verse 2, for not all have faith. And so Paul does not take the personal attacks personally. There's a word there. He does not take the personal attacks personally. Rather, he views what's happening to them as a spiritual matter. It's a matter of faith. So he asked the church to pray for deliverance for the sake of the word of God. So as we pray, our priority should be the word of God. It should be that the word of God would speed ahead, that it would get out, speed ahead, and it would be honored that it would get in. And we need to pray for the opposition, those that would come and the work of the enemy to hinder the work of the Lord. We need to pray the word of the Lord. And secondly, we need to pray the faithfulness of the Lord. Number two, point two, the faithfulness of the Lord. So verse two, verse two here, it, it ends with a sad indictment. It says, for not all have faith. But verse 3, it begins with a wonderful assurance. But the Lord is faithful. That's good news. The Lord is faithful. We live in a world uh, where loyalty is a scarce commodity. And oftentimes we're left to ask, who can we trust? Who can I lean on? Who can I depend on? And if you're here today and you're asking those kinds of questions, Paul has an answer for you. Who can I trust? The Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. His character never changes. His love never ceases. His compassions never end. His promises never fail. His wisdom never errs. His purposes never come to an end. His strength never wanes. The Lord is faithful. A.W. Tozer says this. He says, no matter the state of the restless sea of humanity, be it the muted ebb and flow of indifference or the violent swell of fierce opposition, the Lord controls the waves and he is faithful in every circumstance. The Lord is faithful in every circumstance. You name it, he's faithful. The Lord is faithful. He's faithful in salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into a fellowship of his son, Christ Jesus the Lord. He's faithful in temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has taken over you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted above your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of an escape that you may be able to endure it. He's faithful in confession. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's faithful in sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 24. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. He's faithful in every circumstance. You name it, he's faithful. Lamentations chapter 3 
Verse 22. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is faithful. Praise God, he's faithful. Oh, bless his name, he's faithful. The Lord is faithful. And so in verses 3 and 4 of this text, Paul states that the Lord can be trusted to do what needs to be done in you and through you. The Lord can be trusted to be done what needs to be done in you. Verse 3. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So there's two promises here in verse 3. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. There's a promise of internal stability. He will establish you. That verb establish, it means to confirm, to settle, support. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul prays that the Lord will comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And so Paul is praying that in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, so that prayer request that he has at the end of chapter 2 is a bold promise here in chapter 3. Paul declares that the Lord is faithful to make you strong and to stable and to settle you on the inside. So when I, got, when I got my first car, I didn't know anything about cars. And I really still don't know much about cars. All I knew at the time when I got my first car uh, was that you need to put some gas in it and, and maybe change the oil every now and again. That's all I knew. And so when I got my first car, it was a 2006 Mazda 6, and I would turn on the ignition, and then on the dashboard, there would be a bunch of lights that light up, and one of them was a check engine light. And I just ignored it. Didn't mean anything to me because I turned my car on, it worked, it drove, I was fine. Until one day I was coming, uh, leaving St. Charles, going back home to where I lived in West Dundee, and I was about, I was on Randall, high rush hour, about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and right uh, Elgin, uh, uh, Elgin on Randall and 20, right by the Elgin movie theater, and my car stopped in the middle of traffic. So, the same that is true for your check engine light in your car, it's the same for your heart. It's the same for your soul. Your soul has a check engine light. And oftentimes we ignore that when it comes on. Things like fear and anxiety and anger and frustration and being irritable. All of these things are the check engines of your soul. And we should not ignore them. Oftentimes we do ignore them. Especially in a season like this. There's so much fear and anxiety and we... Ignore those things, but these are things that says, hey, you're not trusting the Lord. But there's good news. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. The Bible says, he will keep you in perfect peace if you keep your mind stayed on him. He will keep you in perfect peace. The Lord can be trusted to do what needs to be done in you. In verse 2, Paul asks the saints to pray for his deliverance from wicked and evil men. And so now in verse 3, he promises, that the, he promises that the Lord will guard them against their source of evil, which is the evil one. And so 
the suggestion here is that when men work to hinder the progress of the word, uh, it's not just um, an issue of mere uh, interpersonal conflict or personal opinions or human wisdom, that when men work to hinder the work of God, the suggestion is that this is spiritual warfare. And we know from Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. So people are never your biggest problem. The enemy of your soul is at work to undermine the word of the Lord and to overthrow your faith. But hear me, the Lord is faithful to guard you, to keep you against the evil one. That word guard, it's a military term that Paul is using here. It it gives the picture of a soldier who stands on guard against, to protect against the, the enemy's attack. So Satan and his forces are in the invisible ram and they are plotting against the truth and against the gospel, and against the saints, and against the church, and against the kingdom of God. But the Lord stands on guard to protect you from the evil one. I like Jude's benediction. Jude, verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you. Now unto him that is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, both now and forever. Amen. Now unto him that is able, the Lord stands on guard. He will keep you. The Lord can be trusted to do what needs to be done in you. But he also can be trusted to do what needs to be done through you. In verse 4, The Bible says, and we have this confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. So Paul here, he's speaking pastorally, speaking as a pastor here. So in the letter, the first letter that he writes to the Thessalonians, Paul, uh, he issues commands for the saints to obey, to live by. And so now here in the second letter, he's commending them for their obedience to his commands. And he was confident that they will continue to obey in the days that were to come. But his confidence was not in them. This combination that he gives was an affirmation that these believers were true Christians. But his confidence was not in them, it was in the Lord. And so in Matthew chapter 28, you know it, Jesus gives the church its mission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's our mission. So true discipleship is characterized by a life of obedience. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I tell you? True discipleship is going to be characterized by a life of obedience. And so Paul commends the saints here at Thessalonica that they were obedient to the word. But again, his confidence was not in the Thessalonians. Verse 4, look again. And we have this confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command you. Paul's confidence was in the Lord, not in the Thessalonians. 
I want you to feel the tension between divine sovereignty and personal responsibility. It is our Christian duty to obey what the scripture commands. It is, in fact, our Christian duty. And we will be held accountable at the judgment seat of Christ for our disobedience to the word. Yet, we do not and cannot take any credit for any good thing that we do. So, because of that, we should never get upset when people don't call you out for the good things that you do. And likewise, we should never become puffed up when people praise you for the good things you are doing. And all that you've done, you've done nothing at all. Christ has done it all. Christ has done it all. One of my favorite texts regarding this, the divine sovereignty and human responsibility as it relates to our sanctification, it's Philippians chapter 2. Get into verse 12, verse 12 and 13. Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. Paul writes here, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God that works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work it out, he says. Work out your salvation. You have some work to do. Work it out. But as you work it out with fear and trembling, no, it is God that works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And all that you do, you've done nothing at all. It's all Christ. Praise God. That's good news. Now in verse 5. In verse 5, Paul announces a benediction and in which he will entrust the saints to the direction of the Lord. He says in verse 5, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So our third point will be this. Third and last point is the direction of the Lord. The direction of the Lord. Verses 1 and 2, Paul makes a prayer request for the word of the Lord. In verses 3 and 4, Paul exhorts the saints to trust and to obey with confidence in the faithfulness of the Lord. Word of the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord. And now he will direct them to the direction of the Lord. And we'll take this last verse and we'll look at it in three parts. This prayer request will fall down into three parts. First, we need to see... Uh, the priority of our spiritual direction, the priority of our spiritual direction. So in verse five, Paul says, may the Lord direct your hearts. May the Lord direct your hearts. So the saints, the Christians that he's writing to at Thessalonica, they were faced again with various challenges, many difficult times that they were living in. But when Paul prays for them and when he makes this prayer request for them, he never prays for their circumstances. In the first letter, we see that Paul prays many times in 1 Thessalonians. Paul doesn't pray for their circumstances. He did not pray in, in a prayer that he prays in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Again, and he does not pray for their circumstances as recorded in the prayer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And then again, here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, verses 1 through 5, he does not pray for their circumstances. Instead, Paul prays for their hearts. Praise for the hearts. When I'm talking about the heart, we're not talking about that uh, palpitating muscle that's beating in your chest. We're talking about the center of everything that you are, the, the seat of your personhood, the mind, the will, and your emotions. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the heart. It is who you really are underneath your skin. And so when things are not going right in our lives, 
when things are not going right in the church, the heart of the matter is really a matter of the heart. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 gives us some wise counsel here. It tells us to keep your hearts with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Everything, everything, everything in life flows from the condition of your heart. Everything. So what's happening in you is more important than what's happening to you. What's happening in you is more important than what's happening to you. Your spiritual disposition is more important than your surrounding circumstances. We see this in the scriptures oftentimes. Paul says this in Romans 5. James says this. That what God is doing, even in the midst of your circumstances, what God is working in you is more important than what happens to you. So Paul prays that God would work on your hearts. He doesn't pray for the situation. He prays that God would work on your hearts. And this should be our priority when we pray for one another. We cannot know if God will change our circumstances, but we can definitely pray that God changes us in the midst of our circumstances. We should pray for the priority of our spiritual direction. And secondly, we should pray for the petition, we should petition for our spiritual direction. Verse five again, may the Lord direct your hearts. So the verb that Paul is using here, direct, it means to um, open a path. It means to clear away obstacles. So it means to open a path and to clear away obstacles. And here's the good news. God can do both of those things. God can lead you on the path that you need to go and God can remove the obstacles and the oppositions out of your way. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, you know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. And the ESV says, and he will make your path straight. God can do that. He can make straight your path. He can lead you where you need to go on the path. And I grew up learning and memorizing this text in the King James. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all their ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. You see the same thing there. So one, he'll make straight your path or he'll direct your path. He will move the things out of your way that is in your way on your path. Trust in the Lord. So we need to petition as we pray. We need to be petitioning for our spiritual direction. Then the last part of this verse is the purpose of our spiritual direction. The purpose of our spiritual direction. Verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Paul here, he asked the Lord to direct our hearts to two destinations. Two different places. Direct them to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. He does not pray that the Lord would direct us, that the Lord would give us victory over our enemies. He doesn't pray that the Lord would give us uh, healing for our hurts, provision for our needs. He doesn't pray that the Lord would give us a solution for our problems or the ending of our trouble. He prays that the Lord would direct our hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So let's look at those things. May the Lord direct our hearts to the love of God. 
so that phrase, the love of God, it can mean two things. It can either mean um, the love that we as the saints have for God, or it can mean the love that God has for us, the saints. And based on context, either one of those works. So may the Lord direct our hearts to have a love for God or that we will see how much God loves us. Either one of those works. But in light of the context here, it probably refers more to the love of God, to the love that God has for us. And so Paul here is praying that the Lord would lead the saints into a greater assurance of the love that God has for us. Because after all, God is love. God is love. And anything that has to do with God has to do with love. I'll show you. Mercy. It's God's forgiving love. Grace. It's God's undeserving love. Joy. It's God's encouraging love. <clears throat> Suffering. It's God's perfecting love. Providence. It's God's caring love. The cross, it's God's proven love. Heaven, it's God's eternal love. Eternity, it's God's unending love. Anything that has to do with God has to do with love because God is love. Martin Luther says it well. He says that God does not love us because we are valuable, but we are valuable because God loves us. And when life is filled with bad news, the love of God is the good news that we can run to for refuge. It's good news. And the good news about God's love for us is that nothing, the Bible tells us, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. For who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we regard it as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. When life is filled with difficult times, run to the love of God. He loves you. Run there. May God direct our hearts to the love of God. May we see clearly how much God loves us. And if you want to know how much God loves you, look to the cross. He loves you. He sent his son to die, to redeem you to bring you back into right relationship with him, to restore and to create and make all things new. May the Lord direct our hearts to the love of God and may the Lord direct our hearts to the steadfastness of Christ. So again, this reference has two meanings. It, the steadfastness of Christ, it could refer to the steadfastness that Christ himself has or it could refer to the steadfastness that Christ gives us. Again, both of those work. The word steadfastness, it translates to a verb that means to be under a heavy load. So we are under a heavy load, but yet in the midst of having that load, we do not quit. Even though we're under a load. To the contrary, in fact, we keep on pressing in spite of our heavy loads. And Christ himself, 
He demonstrates this. He, he, he possessed this. He exhibited this, this kind of steadfast endurance, this perseverance during his earthly life and ministry. And he enables us. Those of us who trust in him, we have access to that same steadfastness to the bear the burdens of that heavy load. We have the ability to endure because Christ gives it to us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy, who for the joy was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. May the Lord direct our hearts to the steadfastness of Christ. We have that. Christ shows that. He demonstrated that in his earthly life and ministry. And through the power of the Spirit, he gives us that same endurance. We can endure. And this should be our priorities as people. As we live in the midst of difficult times, our priorities should be praying the word of God, that the word would get out, that the word would get in. That we pray that we trust and see and have confidence in the faithfulness of God that he who calls will surely do it and that we should pray for our spiritual directions. Pray that in the midst of difficult times, God would change our hearts, that he would direct us on his path, lead us and guide us. And so as I close, I want to close with the words of a hymn that my grandmother always used to sing in the church growing up. And it says, I must tell Jesus all of my troubles for I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me, for he ever loves and he cares for his own. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. But Jesus can help us. Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to be people of prayer? Help us to bear each other's burdens. And as we bear each other's burdens, you will lift the heavy load off of us. Help us to be people that prioritize the word of God, that we will be people that proclaim the word. And not only that we preach it, that we believe it and obey it. And that help us to see continually the faithfulness of God in and the midst of us. That we pray ultimately for our spiritual directions, that our hearts will be changed and nithered, that we would be more like Christ in the midst of our difficult times. Father, we pray that as the seed of the word has been watered and planted, you, by the power of your spirit, would bring forth your increase. So I pray in Jesus' name, amen.